Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The United States can never default on its legal obligations. To do so would have catastrophic economic consequences. We've been way too over-reliant on foreign markets. People want to create these U.S. jobs. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The Fed, under Powell's leadership, has basically shown the banks the test in advance. Mobilizing the business community is a really good thing to do, yes. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Oil prices hit a fresh seven-year high here in the U.S. to end a week that saw WTI close above $80 a barrel for the first time since October 2014, when Joe Biden was vice president. Today, we focus on why the policies contributing to the increases and what it means for the Biden economic agenda. With natural gas prices going through the roof, gasoline prices hitting a seven-year high $3.30 a gallon nationally. We'll talk about it all coming up with energy analyst Tom Close of the Oil Price Information Service. The classic panel with us on a Friday. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano, our Democratic analyst, and Rick Davis, Republican strategist, are with us for the hour. And later on, we'll turn to the politics behind the January 6th commission. Subpoenas going out and very little information coming in. We'll be joined by law professor Jonathan Adler of Case Western Reserve University. You just heard it from the source, from Charlie. The price of a barrel, WTI 82.28, he said. As I now read on the terminal, U.S. oil hits highest since OPEC began price war against shale producers. Think of that. That was 2014. And that's despite efforts by the Biden administration to light a fire under OPEC, though some would say it's thanks in part to the administration's energy policies. Let's learn more from the dean of U.S. oil analyst Tom Closa at the Oil Price Information Service, which he helped to found, is with us right now. Tom, thank you for being here. Do you see oil hitting $100 a barrel, as some are predicting? Well, I see it as a possibility, uh, but I see it as a possibility uh, of a paroxysm where it's not going to be sustained at that number for a quarter or possibly even a month. But Mm -hmm. certainly it's changed. And one thing about October is it's kind of a honeymoon period. Uh, The winter is going to have to deliver to send prices upwards, you know, into the 90 or $100 range. But this tempest of sort of uh, uh, storms with the energy transition overseas in Europe and and Asia does kind of set the stage for some numbers that we haven't seen, well, since uh, the Arab spring years of 2011 to 2014. We hear a lot about underinvestment. I know there's a supply and demand equation here, but underinvestment in oil in this country for many, many years is what brought us here. Do you agree with that? No, I don't really agree with that. Uh, I, I think, you know, oil can tend to be very bipolar, and we're entering a little bit of a manic uh, phase. And I do think that in terms of oil shale, uh, 50% of it managed by public companies, they did a particularly bad job of managing it uh, during the boom and bust cycles when we had two of them. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of talk about OPEC 
OPEC plus discipline, and there's a lot of talk about non-OPEC or U.S. shale discipline. Uh, but history shows that uh, the discipline gives way to a little bit of a melee, and uh, I suspect we'll see considerably higher production from the U.S., and I suspect we'll see OPEC and Russia and some of the other parties probably put more oil on the market in 2022. So we hear from the White House, we're coming at this from the Washington angle, obviously, here, Tom, and mm-hmm. the politics behind all of this. We hear the White House say, well, we're asking OPEC, we're urging OPEC to increase production. Just as, as a non-member nation, does that bring us anywhere? Why not fire up the shale? Uh, I think that they're probably using all diplomatic channels to do what they, they can, uh, but who knows what sort of adversarial relationship there might be between the Biden White House and some of the OPEC members. Because after all, you know, they, they are embracing climate change and they are embracing the decarbonization of fuels, much like Europe has. So it's not in OPEC's best interest, let's say, to kowtow to the U.S. But, but I would maintain that you know, the stage for this was set when we went to negative numbers and we saw unprecedented cuts uh, between OPEC, Kazakhstan, Russia, and some of the other smaller countries. And uh, that's really, it's part of it. And we've also probably been seduced by the notion that we can get off of fossil fuels and onto electricity and, and other carbon neutral mm-hmm. uh, uh, fuels much, much quicker than can happen. Uh, you know, the, the population of the world is going to grow by a billion people in the next 14 years. And that means that probably a billion people are going to be coming mobile, you know, whether they, they use scooters or, or automobiles or trucks. So mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be tough to uh, get weaned off of fossil fuel in, in a matter of years. It's a matter of decades or even scores. I'm fascinated by the conversation about renewable energy here because in, in, in some cases it in itself will send fossil fuel prices and oil prices higher, right? As we start the creation uh, of uh, these charging stations, as we try to build all of these EVs, it takes fossil fuels to do that. So are the policies of this White House actually helping to increase oil prices? I don't think so. Not yet. Now, uh, I mean, if the policies get followed, and uh, get followed through on, you can probably blame the administration, you know, in 2024 and 2025. Mm-hmm. Now, we happen to think that the discipline is going to break between OPEC plus, plus, uh, you know, about 50% of the U.S. shale producers are private companies. And, you, you know, private equity, if they could bring a billion barrels of crude oil to the surface in about two weeks, they would do that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it is a problem to get off of oil. And we've been on it for a long, long time. And I think that's what we're seeing in Europe. You know, they probably moved a little bit too hastily to wind power and solar power. And for a while, the sun didn't shine and the wind didn't blow. And so you have the equivalent of 300 or $400 a barrel for natural gas and you know, companies shutting down for lack of power at a reasonable cost. And to a certain extent, that's happened in China. We're actually, and, and this has nothing to do with this president or the former president, but we're actually a privileged continent when it comes to fuel prices, because we do have the shale. We have cheap natural gas. It's just that uh, we've been through a year where we cycled lower on it. And so we're going to be able to probably transition a lot better than Europe and and portions of Asia. To what extent, Tom, is our allergy to pipelines contributing to these higher prices? 
Well, pipelines are very, very effective ways of moving product around the country. Uh, and, you know, I mean, the Keystone XL is dead. We know that, uh, and it's not going to be resurrected. But some of the other pipelines that are probably talking about shutting down would have some pretty severe consequences. Um, you know, a pipeline, as opposed to moving it waterborne by barge or cargo or uh, via trucks when you don't have enough trucks to move the fuel, we've seen what can happen in the U.K. when you don't have enough transport truck drivers and you have fuel outages. And uh, unlike the U.K., I think gasoline prices and high gasoline prices are a third rail of American politics. So uh, the White House has really got its work cut out for it right now. There aren't any easy solutions, and I think they probably have to play the long game, both on decarbonization and also on getting some more oil out there. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't look harshly upon some of the U.S. companies which have been reluctant uh, to reopen some wells or drill in Texas and New Mexico because they get blamed inaccurately for uh, curtailing new production on federal lands. But there's plenty of land that can be exploited right now that's sort of grandfathered in. Where is it? Texas and New Mexico, North Dakota. It's not in New Jersey and New York. We know that. Right. We're talking with Tom Close of the Oil Price Information Service. Uh, Every year around this time, Tom, I, I ask you where we're going with heating oil prices. I guess I would ask you that. Uh, as well as we consider the season when it comes to gasoline, will will these two continue to rise? Yeah, I think they will rise. And again, I, I, it's certainly for October. And then I think the fourth quarter, uh, we're going to have to see winter sort of deliver some temperatures. Uh, you'll hear all sorts of disaster stories about if it's a colder than normal winter. Uh, I'm not sure what the data shows. Anecdotally, it seems like maybe we've had three colder than normal winters in the 21st century. So the honeymoon will be over then. But I I do think that we're going to see numbers around $4 a gallon for heating oil. I think we're going to see very, very high numbers for propane. And natural gas, where it's a time lag between what you see in the spot markets and what you pay for your home, it's certainly going higher. You know, in many cases, probably twice what was paid last year. Four dollars a gallon for heating oil. Tom Close, thank you. The Oil Price Information Service. Thanks for your expertise being with us. And uh, thanks for being with us on Sound On. Absolutely. And thank you as well for leaving us with the crude oil blues. Remember, gas price today, national gas price, has not been this high since President Biden was vice president. Well, now listen, people, let me tell you some news. I sing a song called the crude oil blues. We're low on heat and on, we're low on gas. Today, gas prices are lower than they were early in this decade. We got the crude oil blues. But they're still high enough to create a pinch on working families. We are not a member of OPEC, as you all know. We're also made clear to OPEC. Uh, We are in regular touch with OPEC. That the production cuts made during the pandemic should be reversed. I got the crude oil blues. If Hillary got in, you'd be doing wind, windmills. Your gasoline price is up. If it doesn't blow, you can forget about television for that night. And we have also raised um, issues of supply. It's got the crude oil blues. Darling, I want to watch television. I'm sorry. The wind isn't blowing. No gas tax increases. No gas tax increases. I know a lot about wind. I know a lot about wind. I got the crude oil blues. I'll pack up some of the heat. You can't have fun on a Friday, right? 
Coming up, we assemble the panel with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Chanzano, our Democratic analyst, and Rick Davis, our Republican strategist. They're with us for the hour, and coming up, we're going to find out what they are paying for gas and the politics behind all of this. So stay right where you are. We'll check markets and traffic on the way. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. You don't need the headline on the terminal because you already put it in your tank. A gallon of gas, well over $3 and a quarter in most areas, a barrel of WTI crude running over $82, as we heard there from Charlie. And we're not worried about inflation, right? Let's talk it out with the panel. With us on a Friday, a special event here. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us for the hour. Jeannie, I'll start with you. We've heard repeated references to high energy prices and, for that matter, high prices for food and other items from this White House. They claim inflation is transitory, but there is a concern about energy prices. The White House making phone calls to OPEC, as we were just discussing with Tom Closa. Is it the policy of this administration that's contributing to this or making it better? You know, and by the way, Joe, now I see how much fun you have on Fridays as you're playing all these great songs and <laughs> having so much fun. We got the so crude oil fun. blues. There's nothing I, I can say it. about it. <laughs> you know, um, the the reality is is that the president is going to get the administration um, is going to get blame as these prices go higher, but there's not a lot that they can do about it. I mean, their options are to a certain extent fairly limited in terms of their ability to control the the energy sector around the world. So, you know, they are trying to do what they can. My concern politically has been, are they stepping in and trying to you know, take the reins of something that they're going to get blamed for if it doesn't, the numbers don't start to go down. Mm-hmm. And yet they don't seem to have a real good sustained policy for addressing this. And so I am a bit concerned about that. You know, there is something that the administration could do as they think about going to Scotland in just a few weeks and they think about addressing the climate change conference. They could do something markedly different than either Republican or uh, uh, Democratic administrations in the U.S. have done recently during energy crises like this or, or higher prices. They could be an example for the rest of the world on how to handle and transition fossil fuels uh, you know, these fossil fuel sectors. Um, but they haven't done that and they haven't put a plan for that. And I, that's what I think is a miss on their part. If this if gas prices are, are the third rail politics, as Tom Closa said, we've got a lot of third rails around here, Rick. And we know that this administration is headed to COP26, as Jeannie just referenced, uh, at the end of this month into the beginning of November. What else can they do? Are, are we going to be talking about releasing supplies from the strategic reserve next what what tools do they have yeah i mean nothing is going to happen overnight uh you talked earlier about whether or not you could prod the fracking uh industry into uh producing more you you you've got um uh strategic reserves that i guess would have a a quick short-term uh impact but i'm not sure it lasts through the winter right and 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 these are these are uh, inflationary uh, activities, the increasing oil and gas prices. It's been happening for a long time in the sense that, um, you know, we had, we had artificially low 
uh, uh, prices for gas and oil uh, over the last couple of years, partly brought in by the lack of activity due to COVID. So, um, you know, they, there's going to be a reckoning. And what's interesting is this administration is poorly positioned to haul in the oil industry in a public event to try and show their metal and what they're trying to do because they've been railing against it, mm-hmm. you know, for the last couple of years uh, as a lead up to the presidency and now while they're in it. And, they're, and it's absolutely the worst timing because of what uh, Jeannie was saying about the fact that they're on the verge of a COP26 where they're supposed yeah. to go out and talk about how they don't want oil as a energy driver in the future. And so they're caught in a pinch. I mean, this administration uh, has been dealt a bad set of cards, but they don't seem to be playing the ones that they've got very well. And this is a good example where now they're in a vice at a very importune time. Uh, and so the world's going to see John Kerry talking about, you know, being anti-carbohydrates or carbohydrates. <laughs> I wish it was about putting cereal in your tank. Uh, hydrocarbons. And uh, and at the same time, the White House begging these guys to turn on the spigot. So, um, you know, th- th- this is going to be a tough winter for the administration on this issue of trying to fight inflation by trying to drive down gas prices. Yeah. We're not a member of OPEC, Jeannie, but what leverage does this White House have to, to prod producers to crank up more? You know, they can, they can prod, they can push, they can beg. They don't have a lot of tools at their disposal. But I do think there is a way to just build on what Rick was just saying, that they could try to use this to their advantage. Um, you know, it, it's certainly it's not the crisis they wanted, but it's where they find themselves. And so we do know what we're going to be hearing from the right and, and conservatives. We're already hearing it, is that as these prices go up, that this is because of the Biden administration's green policy. This is because of the AOCs of the world. This is because of the green movement. And that is why we see the administration reacting and trying to have it both ways. They shouldn't do that. They should go and try to show the rest of the world this is a plan. This is a a, a basic plan to help transition from this fossil fuel sector. There are ways to do this. And the reality is everybody knows it needs to be done. It is a crisis. It is a crisis that we are all and all of our children and grandchildren are going to suffer from. And, you know, Biden and the administration could lead the world in showing them how to move through this. But I, we have to see them take the reins of that. And there's a lot of smart people who have plans in place to do that. But they need the political will, quite frankly, to take on this sector. And they're deathly afraid of the Joe Mansions and others in their own party. It's going to be an expensive winter. And I wonder what happens when we finally get over this COVID, when we crest the COVID and get back to reopening that will only increase demand. Coming up, we turn to the investigation into January 6th. Rick and Jeannie will come back as Steve Bannon is targeted for a contempt charge after refusing to cooperate with a subpoena. We'll talk with law professor Jonathan Adler next. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Headline on the terminal, Bannon targeted for contempt charge in House Riot Probe. Not a shocker to see Steve Bannon ignore a subpoena from the House Committee investigating the insurrection, right? But how about the former Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows? 
There's news today. His testimony's been delayed, postponed amid reports that he is, quote, engaging with the panel. We will talk about it next with law professor Jonathan Adler from Case Western. There should be some drama on Capitol Hill next Tuesday. It's not about infrastructure or reconciliation, not in the debt ceiling or government funding, but on whether to hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress. This after the former Trump advisor refused at the request of the former president to not cooperate with a subpoena from the House committee investigating the attack on the Capitol January 6th. This says former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, quote, engages with the panel, unquote, allowing his testimony now to be delayed following President Biden's decision to not support Donald Trump's assertion of executive privilege. We told you about it when it happened. Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about it. Shouldn't everybody want to get to the bottom of that? Democrats, Republicans, people who have no political affiliation whatsoever. We're joined to talk about it by Jonathan Adler, law professor and director of the Burke Center at Case Western Reserve University. Professor, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. We'll tick through this a, a little bit here, beginning with, with the fact that, that Congress doesn't have a lot of teeth when it comes to holding someone in contempt, does it? Well, historically, Congress did. Historically, Congress would actually send the sergeant of arms out to go detain the person yeah, uh, until they were willing to testify. Uh, that's not something the modern Congress wants to do. And historically, there's often a problem if the information Congress wants from the executive is coming from the other party. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, however, uh, Congress and the executive branch are held by the same political party, so Congress is more likely to get cooperation and support from the executive branch if it pursues something like a contempt prosecution against Steve Bannon. So he could be in some trouble. What would that result in? Well, he could be in trouble. I mean, he could be he could face prosecution if he refuses to cooperate. Uh, I assume that Bannon and his attorneys are in part trying to drag this out, trying to use a litigation or a forced prosecution as a means of delay. Uh, but I think ultimately. The executive privilege claims here, uh, in, in Bannon's case, are relatively weak, and uh, this is really nothing more than a delay tactic, and that he could ultimately face a sanction if, if he refuses to cooperate, but it may take time for those legal proceedings to go forward. You know, a lot of people roll their eyes when they hear this because they say, well, my God, when's the last time anybody was honest on Capitol Hill, and these lawmakers are holding someone in contempt? Well, I mean, the... the the Congress wants to know what role people like Steve Bannon had in the events of January 6th, both the storming of the Capitol as well as the machinations that occurred within the White House to try and engineer some sort of uh, uh, flip of the electoral college count by yep. excluding states or delaying and so on. And uh, there are potentially criminal uh, uh, charges that could arise out of involvement in either of those activities. And it's something that Congress believes the American people should know more about. Uh, and the, 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 the current executive branch agrees. You know, this was a fairly significant event. And it is something that um, that we should know more about. And, and a congressional inquiry is one way to do that. I want to explore the limits of executive privilege with you. Uh, but first, I, I want to get your sense of what's happening with Mark Meadows here, the fact that his testimony was delayed, the fact that he's engaging the, the term they're using with the committee, does that mean he's singing? Does that mean he's making life more difficult for Steve Bannon? Well, I, I think he probably is making life more difficult for Steve Bannon. I mean, the reality is both sides know that if 
this is a, if, if they stick to their guns and refuse to cooperate, that can ultimately lead to a contempt referral. That can ultimately lead to litigation and prosecution. Uh, and there is a there is reasons why folks don't want to uh, go down that road. And the other thing about executive privilege is that it's always a, a bit of a balancing act. That is to say, there are interests on the side of confidentiality. There are interests on the side of investigation. And if uh, Congress and, and Meadows are able to um, reach an accommodation about what sorts of information he can disclose that is res- that is responsive to Congress's requests, uh, but that doesn't tread on areas where there might be legitimate privilege claims, well, then that seems to give everybody a bit of what they want. Yeah. Uh, executive privilege is maintained. Meadows doesn't have to risk uh, something like a contempt prosecution, um, but Congress gets the information that the American people uh, legitimately want. And I should note that, that what's l- these interviews initially are likely to be behind closed doors, which also can lessen the, the likelihood of grandstanding, well, you know, and, which we all know happens sure. in congressional hearings when they're public. And if the goal is really to get information that, that the public uh, is entitled to, you know, allowing, reaching, or negotiating over what sorts of questioning is is or is not going to be pursued behind closed doors uh, can be helpful. Last thing I'll note, it is possible um, that part of the negotiation could relate to possible immunity. That is to say, uh, Congress can... um, Well, that's uh, what I was thinking. That could be bad news for Steve Bannon, right? But while you're with us, Professor, talk to us about the extent... Yeah. Understood. Talk to us about the extent of executive privilege for a former president here without the support of the current president. Does that mean anything to Congress? Well, it, it, it weakens the claim. So a lot of people claim that once you're no longer president, you no longer have executive privilege because it, it's a privilege of the executive, not any given president. And, and that's not true. The Supreme Court actually rejected that position uh, in, in one of the cases involving some of Nixon's papers. On the other hand, um, the court also noted that if the existing occupant of the White House, the existing executive, does not support the claim of privilege, yeah. that certainly weakens the claim. So in this case, it involved, uh, in, in the Nixon case, it involved access to some of his papers um, after he had left office, and um, uh, the court you know, ultimately allowed mo- most of the access uh, to occur, uh, but it didn't it didn't reach it didn't reach that conclusion by saying there's no executive privilege it's just saying that the claim is weaker similarly um, the types of information affects how strong or weak the privilege is as does the reason that congress wants it all right professor jonathan adler law professor director of the burke center case western reserve university appreciate the info here we're going to reassemble the panel and dig into this with rick and Jeannie next i'm joe matthew stay right here this is bloomberg You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Good lesson on executive privilege from Professor Adler. Let's get into the politics around all this now with the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis back with us here. Rick, what do you make of this conversation with Steve Bannon or the lack thereof and and news today that Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff of the White House, is engaging with the panel. You've seen blue ribbon panels before and investigative panels on Capitol Hill. What does that indicate to you when you hear that they're engaged? You know, I think he's trying to avoid a uh, a public show of force. You know, he's got Donald Trump on one side, 
telling him, don't cooperate, you know, you exert executive privilege. He knows as chief of staff that he doesn't have an executive privilege at this point and, and unlikely to get any breaks from this committee. So he's just trying to work something out. I mean, it, I, I doubt if, 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 if Mark Meadows wants to be the center of attention. The difference is Bannon wants to be the center of attention. He'd love to cause a fight with the Congress. I mean, he, he was already convicted of a criminal offense once, got off by Donald Trump's pardon. And yeah. like, he's not afraid to be perp walked into jail over a, you know, contest with Congress over executive privilege. Because so, it's good for the brand? It's good for the brand. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's actually something that I, I think he revels in. So uh, that's the day and age we live in. I know that at least most of my career, people wanted to avoid jail. I mean, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, but that doesn't You're seem to so be affecting these guys. I know. I'm so old-fashioned. Uh, he's definitely uh, spent a little bit of time in and out of jail, as opposed to Mark Meadows. Jeannie, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I mean, it has sort of a whiff of Roger Stone to me that he he does want to be in this spotlight. Of course, he has to also pay back Donald Trump for pardoning him and getting him out of jail the first time. And so he's willing to go back at it again. And, you know, the reality of this, his claim of executive privilege, gosh, if Mark Meadows doesn't have it now, you know, Steve Bannon certainly doesn't have it. It is, it's, uh, you know, beyond a bogus claim. But of course, everybody knows that, including Steve Bannon. But he's going to push that. But the reality is, even if they make the referral to the DOJ, which they most certainly will, the DOJ doesn't often act on these things. So, you know, it is not a sure thing that they will act on it. It's certainly better odds now that they're controlled by the Democrats. But say, best case scenario, they act. You know, Steve Bannon, even if he ultimately did testify, will probably do what he did last time. These scripted questions where he said nothing to Congress. He testified three times before and said literally nothing and used it to grow his brand and this podcast that he does mm -hmm. and everything else he does. So, you know, I'm not sure it's going to elicit any information about January 6th. Did Joe Biden do the right thing uh, when it comes to executive privilege here, Rick? And, and does the former uh, Trump White House have any ground to stand on there at this point without the support of the current executive? Yeah, I mean, it's always one of these things that you never want to test. You know, they call it strategic ambiguity, right? You want it, You want there to be executive privilege. You want that to yes. be kind of an amorphous thing that most people would say, oh, well, of course there's an executive privilege until you actually test it. And when you test it, the last thing you want is your co-equal branch of government, the courts, to say, oh, where do you think you get executive privilege from? <laughs> uh, and, and then the next thing you know, there is no such thing as executive privilege. So, I mean, this has been an, a, a kind of a concept that, that administrations tend to tread lightly on because they never want to actually have to contest it. And it's obviously not great PR to claim that you have a privilege as a, as a government employee, even the president of the United States is a government employee, and, and that you have this privilege that doesn't allow your employee, employer, the people, to know what you're doing. As we spend time with the panel here on a Friday, I want to look forward to what's going on here next week. And we are all wondering if there may be any news as lawmakers start to come back to town. And there's a big task ahead for Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who wanted to have infrastructure and reconciliation wrapped up by Halloween. I don't think either of our panelists expect that to happen, but we'll ask. The president, meanwhile, left the bubble today. He was up in Connecticut uh, for a couple of different reasons, in part to make the case. The cost of the Build Back Better bill in terms of adding to the deficit is zero. So when I hear people say it costs $3.5 trillion, 
And be honest with you, we're probably not going to get $3.5 trillion this year. We're going to get something less than that. But I'm going to negotiate it. I'm going to get it done with the grace of God and the good little neighbors and the crick not rising, as my grandpa would say. <laughs> Did his grandpa really say that? Either way, we're getting down to deadline time here as the White House eyes a series uh, of deadlines coming up, government funding, the debt ceiling, never mind the end of the year. If the president is saying openly, Jeannie, that it's not going to be three and a half trillion dollars, at what point are we going to see progressives get their heads around that and start to negotiate with the speaker to make some progress? Yeah, and, and Joe, you know, if they do get this by Halloween, we want you to be wearing a costume on that day, okay? Because <laughs> Just, right, Sure. That's done. <laughs> that, thank you very much. Um, you know, everybody knows it's not going to be 3.5. Uh, Pelosi has said it. The president has said it. Progressives don't like it. Um, the real question is, do Democrats, progressives, moderates, and everybody in between feel that they are in trouble if they don't get something? And I think that's the message that they are, the White House is trying to send to everybody on the Hill, that we are all in big trouble if we don't get something. And everybody knows we're looking at something around $2 trillion, plus or minus. And the question is, what do you cut out to get to that stage? point do you you shrink the time frame do you go big on a couple programs do you try mm -hmm. to get everything you know i think the concerns are we've heard from the progressive caucus leader she is not yet at the point where she is willing to accept any of that and i, I don't know how this is workable until they all agree they need something to move forward they're back in town late monday right rick does it matter if lawmakers are here, does face-to-face -face matter? Does being summoned to the speaker's office matter? Or is all of this being talked about uh, remotely as we speak? Well, it's for sure being talked about remotely. They're going to try and make as much progress as they can, you know, where people are in place. But I do think pressure tactics work better when you're in the room, and especially in the room with the President of the United States. Uh, we used to have, when I was in the White House with Reagan, lots of cabinet members who told me, ah, you know, I'm going to tell him a thing or two about this policy. <laughs> yeah. And the minute they got in the Oval Office, they're like, yes, Mr. President, anything you say. <laughs> and so that office and the, 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 the importance of the president himself has not lost its ability to uh, convince people to, to join in their, their, their strategy. So absolutely, having that physicality is part of the plan. I would say the one thing Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to do is take up valuable floor time to process a contempt uh, uh, resolution by the committee on, on Bannon, which is where it goes after committee. So, like, talk about, you know, getting off script for this administration uh, when they have so many important things to take up uh, to be to be talking about Steve Bannon uh, is is probably the worst possible option they have for this week. My God. So it sounds to me, Jeannie, like. Uh, Rick just called Joe Biden the closer. Is the president the closer here? Do we actually see that happen? Yeah, it's going to be the president or it's going to be God or somebody of that stature because, you know, there is nobody else. And, you know, I, I think there's an interesting, you know, uh, juxtaposition here. We see Steve Bannon trying to run out the clock on mm -hmm. on, on this entire thing. And we also see Mitch McConnell do the same. And this is the fire that the president has got to light and the leaders under Democrats and saying that if we don't move now, we will not, not get another bite at this apple. Historically, that's probably the case. You guys may need to call God to answer this, but I'd love to know what both of you think the price tag will be on this. It's, if it's not three and a half, Rick Davis, what is it? Well, you know, it's crazy to say it's three and a half paid for because when the Congress came up with their number that of pay fors, it was two point two trillion. 
And so my guess is it's going to be below that because some of that was even shaky when it comes to whether or not Congress would support it. So, you know, less than $2 trillion with pay-fors. What do you think, Jeannie? I'm going to say $1.8 trillion. There you go, Joe. So That's you're my both, Friday guess. <laughs> wow, you're both below two. And you think that Pramila Jayapal is going to sign off on that, Jeannie? Um, I don't think she's going to want to. But again, I think Democrats have got to get something. And something is not perfect, but it's better than nothing. They cannot go into this midterm with nothing. Wait, well, I mean, whether they will or should not, though, are two different things. Rick, what are they jettisoned to get down to that number? Or is it just shorter durations on everything? You know, it's hard to tell where they're coming because every Democrat who's been talking to the press this week has said something different. And even Nancy Pelosi has said two different things on the same day, (laughs) you know, where she says we want a firm commitment, 10 years on these programs. And so we're going to have to make choices. And then she says, but maybe what we ought to do is just back down off that spending and, you know, try to get as much done as we can. Uh It's going to be a real driver politically for them not to cut policies because then they run into these problems with the progressive left. Right. And they they can't leave them behind. They got to give them something. And so my guess is it's going to be a funky combination. Things like the child tax credit, which is super expensive, may get cut back, but other things uh, may be left in if they aren't as expensive and can go the duration. Fascinating. Does, do, do shorter durations, GD, make it easier for Republicans to kill those benefits should they take power? You know, I think it's hard to kill these once they get put into practice, once they're put out there. But, you know, I I do think there's something to be said for doing something big and doing it well and and running on that. And, And I hope that's what the Democrats consider. A lot to think about as we head into this weekend. I hope you do have a weekend. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us here as our Bloomberg Politics contributors and the classic panel. Have a good couple of days. We'll get back here on Monday and do it all over again and see if there's any break on, I was going to say Wall Street. How about Capitol Hill? I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.